0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Here's sort of a thought experiment or a proposition. You kind of remember your first kiss. You really remember your first heartbreak. You remember details of it um, that would elude you about other things. Because heartbreak is a very special kind of wound inflicted on us. And it gets at different nooks and crannies of our sense of self, our sense of reality. It rearranges the molecules uh, of our lives. And that is what science writer Florence Williams found out when her um, three decades long relationship slash marriage came to an abrupt end. So she tried to figure out whether, is there some science behind this? Is there a way of understanding it scientifically? That, plus the language we use without knowing it, and of course, torch songs, on today's show.
2: used to rock me in the cradle of your arms You said you'd hold me till the pains of life were gone You said you'd comfort me in times like these And now I need you, now I need you
1: And you are gone Yes, today's show is about heartbreak. Um, We are going to be talking to Florence Williams, who has been on our show before, and we liked talking to her quite a lot. And we are happy that her new book, we're not happy about the reason for her new book, but we are happy that her new book, Heartbreak, a personal and scientific journey, uh, presents an occasion uh, to have her back a little bit later. We'll talk about how linguistic patterns uh, actually seem, linguistic patterns, particularly on Reddit, (laughs) (laughs) Um, seem to predict uh, oncoming heartbreaks, seem indicative of oncoming heartbreaks, changes in the way people use words uh, and construct sentences. So you know how sewage water can now be kind of a leading indicator of COVID outbreaks? Think think of Reddit that way, kind of, assuming you already don't. And at the end of the show, because I think there is no fuller expression of heartbreak in, in the world of the arts, than than in the torch song, uh, in in that kind of music. We will have an extended conversation uh, about uh, torch songs with Noah Behrman, a jazz musician and good friend of the show. So, yeah, lately I've been watching... Uh, holding Florence Williams' book nearby as kind of a, a Fodor's guide. I've been watching the the reimagining uh, of, um, of Scenes from a Marriage, Bergman's original series uh, reimagined uh, by the Israeli filmmaker, um, oh, I'm going to screw up his name now, uh, the Israeli filmmaker Hagai Levy. Uh, and I didn't expect it to grab me the way it has. It feels more like a Hitchcock thriller at times, uh, more like that than what it ostensibly is. And then with Florence Williams as a, a, a companion in book form, uh, I'm aware that you know beholding the heartbreak, particularly of Jonathan, powerfully played by Oscar Isaac, the husband in this couple— all kinds of systems in my brain and body are kind of winking and blinking and buzzing and coming on alert status, and we're going to talk about why that is right now with Florence Williams. Hi. Welcome back to our show.
3: Hi. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here.
1: So uh, you're probably getting tired of telling the story, and I don't think you need to tell it at <laughs> great length, but I mean, the reason you're writing this book is because your own uh, marriage, a uh, relationship uh, of 32 years Uh, dating back to your undergraduate days uh, in a very fine college in New Haven, uh, came unglued.
3: Yeah, that's right. I I met the man who would be my husband on literally my first day of college. So I was 18 years old. Uh, We dated for seven years and then we got married and we were married for 25 years. So, you know, my entire adult life, really, until at the cusp of 50, um, my husband decided he wanted to, go do something else and leave the marriage. And it was super devastating. I had never experienced heartbreak before because I had been with the same man, you know, virtually forever.
1: Which virtually guaranteed also that you would experience it kind of on steroids, so to speak. Uh, I think so. When you finally got there. Yeah. So, I'm going to propose a little thought experiment, which I think you will enjoy. Not a thought experiment, exactly, but a prompt. Let's put it that way. So imagine that I am uh, Mr. Spock's father, the father of Mr. Spock on, on Star Trek. His name was Sarek, and I swear I did have to look that up. Um, so so that means I'm a full-blooded Vulcan. I'm keeping it 100. And and I ask you, Florence Williams, what is this Earth heartbreak? Now, I'm a Vulcan. I don't know from emotions. So you're going to have to explain it to me solely in terms of physiology and other science. So, Florence Williams, what is this earth heartbreak?
3: Okay, Spock's father. I would say (laughs) that heartbreak is what happens when you break a bond of attachment uh, that has been very meaningful to you, and it leaves you feeling absolutely unlike yourself in every way so you suddenly feel um, unlovable you feel like you have no self-esteem you um, feel like you're terrified of the future and you're afraid of being alone you feel uh, your chest gets tight your stomach feels out of place Um, suddenly you have trouble sleeping Uh, You have trouble eating, you lose weight, and, and even your immune system takes this kind of break of attachment so seriously that you feel like you're almost on a different planet.
1: So I, I know that you humans tend to uh, to attach great importance to your emotions and perhaps even, even believe certain things to be true whether they are or not because they seem so emotionally true to you. It's an obvious weakness of your species. If I were to walk you down or take the lift down uh, to Dr. McCoy's uh, area of the ship and have you scanned, would there literally, Ensign Williams, be evidence of the kind of thing that you were describing to me?
3: You know, there would, and and that actually really surprised me because I thought that heartbreak was a metaphor. I thought it's something, you know, this big sadness that maybe you you feel in your psyche. Um, But it turns out that if you analyze our blood, um, you will see changes. And in fact, that's what I did for this book. I went and had my blood analyzed at various time points after the split. And what we found is that our immune system not only changes, but it actually, we have these cells, these white blood cells that are listening for loneliness and listening for our kind of social state. And they, they change according to how we sort of feel that we're moving through the world.
1: And I, okay, I'm back to being myself now. But um, the um, and one of the fascinating things here is that it's kind of longitudinal in the book. You're working uh, with this researcher named Stephen Cole, uh, and you get your blood tested repeatedly to see is stuff working, is stuff now not working. Right, right. Uh, Did
3: that work? Did that cure me?
1: <laughs> right, and and surprisingly, a lot of the things that felt perhaps somewhat uh, you know ameliorative uh, really weren't fixing that problem anyway. To whatever extent your whole somatic system was dealing with this, stuff like getting back into nature and experiencing awe and stuff like that wasn't necessarily doing the trick. That's
3: right. It turns out heartbreak is hard to heal. Mm -hmm. It takes a long time. It requires a lot of patience. Um, You have to kind of hit it from a lot of different angles and that surprised me too. I sort of thought, well, if I just go into the wilderness for a while, I'm sure I'll feel much better by the end of it. Um, and I, I kind of didn't. And and that was that was disappointing. It was all a little bit disappointing <laughs> how long it took.
1: Yes. So okay. No, I can't exactly. First of all, I should say the book is really wonderful. I mean, obviously it's a very difficult topic and there's a lot of science but it doesn't feel like there's a lot of science. It feels like there's just a very powerful set of narratives unfolding. So I really do recommend it to people. Thank you. And like at the end of every episode of Scenes from a Marriage, you can read like two or three chapters of Florence. You'll get the whole picture. But um, but, you know, and so I can't really point to where this is in the book, but I feel like it is sort of there in the totality of the book. So let me just say this without going into a lot of details. Uh, In the last two years, I've been through just a completely horrible situation that has nothing to do really with relational heartbreak or with anybody leaving me or anything like that. It's it's two things involving my family. They are medical in, in nature. And, and I can just guarantee you that, you know, if I offered to swap places and go through your heartbreak, but you'd have to go through my thing, there's no way you would take that deal. <laughs> just, just not not in a million years. However... However, even though my situation, I think, is objectively worse, I totally get, and reading your book, I get it even more, but observationally and, and heuristically, I get that there is a very specific kind of pain, uh, a very bitter cup of hemlock and wormwood that, uh, that attaches to this experience uh, of rejection, betrayal, desertion, loneliness, you know, that, that is, is sui generis, right? There's a way in which it's, yeah. it's not like other kinds of misery.
3: Although I will say there are lots of kinds of heartbreak mm-hmm. you know and they don't all have to be romantic right any kind of um, you know a- attachment loss. Uh, any kind of big grief over a change um, in something you're attached to. And it could be even, you know, your homeland or um, your community. Um, you know, we see um, symptoms of heartbreak, you know, after a big natural disaster, after climate change, you know, your town is on fire. I mean, all of these things are, are kind of heartbreak. And of course, now in the pandemic, I think many of us can relate to this feeling of, you know, just sort of loneliness and isolation and kind of diffuse sense of grief that we're all feeling. So, so I I do think that there is a lot of sort of overlap um, between these different kinds of social pain. And in fact, there's a a doctor from 1904, uh, I think it's around then, Sir William Osler. And at one point he says, you know, the tragedies of life are largely arterial. He knew that we process these kinds of big emotions in our bodies, even if we, you know, kind of forget that.
1: But I also think the kind of heartbreak, the specific relational slash romantic, whatever we want to call it, uh, heartbreak that you're you're writing about, you know, I think there are some things that do differentiate it. I'll tell you what I think, but it would be much more interesting ultimately to know what you think. But I feel as though like intellectually, you know. God forbid. But intellectually, you know, one of your kids could get cancer, you know, um, yeah. Yeah. Y- you know that that could happen. You hope it doesn't. You'll do anything you can to prevent it from happening. Y- you know that somebody that in your family, somebody that you love could, could get COVID and-, and maybe die from it. I mean, you know, those yeah. things are possible. You know, your house could burn down. You-, you know, a lot of things like that. But you kind of don't know in the same way that the person you love and trust and are spe- planning to spend your entire life with could volitionally. Not as part of some kind of force majeure, but volitionally, <laughs> say, you know, uh, I'm going to do something else with somebody yeah. else. Yeah. So I, I
3: just I don't love you anymore, right. and I want to go love someone else. It it is a particular sort of <laughs> devastation. It's true,
1: right? And and it does I think rearrange the molecules of your attitude about life and about relationships in a way that maybe some of these other things don't.
3: Yeah, and it it, it rearranges your sense of who you are. Uh, you know, of, of um, who you thought you were. And um, you certainly have to learn to move through the world in a different way. It, it, it kind of, um, it does... Sort of tear you down to the studs, and you have to rebuild and rediscover who you are without this person. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, there are some definitely unique aspects of it. I spent quite a bit of time looking at the science of rejection, which I didn't even know there was such a thing. But there's a kind of a whole little, um, you know, microcosm of people studying rejection and ostracism. Um, and, and what it means to us as humans, when we are designed to be these, you know, hyper social animals, whose very safety and security and survival depends on basically being liked by other people, you know, we have to sort of get along in groups in order to thrive and survive. And so our brains are super sensitive to feeling rejected. And, and when it happens, we, we kind of, you know, we freak out and we act in very uncharacteristic ways.
1: So one of the things that you look at is traits um, and there are all kinds of different ways of looking at human traits and classifying human traits and, um, you know, whether it's Myers-Briggs or, or the trait, the five trait uh, palette that you lay out there and the thing about these traits is supposedly they're pretty non-fungible right they're you know you can you can't just you know get rid it's I think you compare it to liking pistachio ice cream you just can't get rid of one of these traits <laughs> but so can you say a little bit more about the role that they play because it it seems as though not everybody suffers equally or in the same way and that traits may have something to do with that
3: Yeah, that's right. And, and, you know, generally these traits that, that you're talking about are things like, you know, introversion, extroversion, um, agreeableness, um, or non agreeableness, neuroticism, um, conscientiousness. And then there's one called openness. And in general, we don't move the needle a lot on those traits. We're either introverted or we're not, um, we're anxious or we're not, um, But if you are introverted and anxious, you may be particularly stuck with a kind of long heartbreak, unfortunately. Um, You know, we're sort of the ones who ruminate a lot about what went wrong. And, you know, maybe we sit in this pain for longer than we need to. But I was so wildly hopeful when I spoke to a psychologist named Paula Williams at the University of Utah who said, we actually think there's one trait that's really associated with resilience after heartbreak and resilience after divorce um, because you know, divorce does cause all kinds of health problems. It, it increases your risk of early death and blah, blah, blah. I mean, the, the, the stats are terrible. But if you are someone who is very open and, and what she meant by that was open to beauty, open to new experience, able to um, access feelings of awe, you know, when you hear a symphony or look at a waterfall. If you are that kind of person, you are more likely to sail through heartbreak to the other side to find some kind of meaning, um, you know, and growth and transcendence on the other side. And if you're not that person who's open, you can actually change that personality trait. If you really work at it, you can learn how to become a little more open to beauty and experience. So I just glommed onto that and I thought, okay, this is something I'm going to really try to do for the next couple of years.
1: Yeah. You basically were saying more cowbell. More cowbell. Uh, and just push that slider up a little bit in the openness thing. All right. So I'm kind of speed dating through the whole book and, and, and there's so much there and a lot that I'd like to cover. Um, but I think, first of all, I feel like we're, I'm a little bit older than you, uh, showed up at the same campus that you showed up at just way before you. Uh, so I lived through kind of a different period uh, of the national attitude towards drugs and psychedelics and hallucinogens and stuff like that. I didn't participate at all because I was too big of a fraidy cat. Uh, but I feel like we, we're we're on the cusp of this new set of ideas about it. You reference the Michael Pollan book and ultimately you, although uh, I think you're a little bit like me in terms of being a little bit of a Frady cat. Oh, yeah, uh, but, totally. Yeah. <laughs> but you finally decide, all right, what's in it for me? You wind up uh, in Portland. Forgive me for laughing out loud when the therapist who is supposed to guide you through this incredible psychedelic trip falls asleep and is repeatedly heard by you from whatever cloud you're up on snoring.
3: She starts snoring. See, there are funny moments in the book. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm so glad he laughed. Yeah. You know, I was out for big awe, right? Yeah. I wanted to find awe. If awe was going to save me from heartbreak, wanted to experience awe. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of science now showing that um, some of these psychedelic substances you know if taken you know kind of in the right setting and under the right circumstances um, they actually can can really kind of snake the shake the snow globe right of our of our brains and our molecules um, and land us in a better place um, because of perhaps because of the awe pathway in particular. So I thought great I'm gonna go for this. Uh, What have I got to lose? Like I'm so, you know, desperate really to try stuff, even that I, I mean, I feel so safe doing. Um, So, so you know, there's something about heartbreak that makes you take some risks and want to get better. And so I tried it, and actually I do think it helped.
1: Yeah, and uh, first of all, the description of it is really kind of fascinating, and it seems as though one of the things that might have helped you a little bit. I don't know how different you are from anybody else, or how different. I feel like this is somewhere in my future, but probably for other reasons. But you seem to sort of identify what you needed to do at certain moments, right? Like people had told you, if you see a door, open it, you know. uh, Or you saw demons at one point, and you turned them into happy little suckling pigs, or something. You know, I mean, (laughs) I I don't know. You were you were able to sort of lucidly (laughs) alter what was going on.
3: Yeah. I mean, so, so that's part of the setting, you know, being so important. Um, I, I did work with someone, uh, a clinician, you know, who really helped me, I think, figure out what are my intentions, you know, from this experience, what do I hope to gain from it? Um, do I have some questions I'm trying to ask, you know, as I'm kind of tripping through the cosmos, um, because your ego kind of pops in and out. You know, during this experience, sometimes I was just a filament of light, you know, swimming in an ocean of other filaments of light, and my ego was completely out of the house. But occasionally this voice in my head would come back and say, okay, Florence, um, you know, it's time to talk to your mother let's, let's bring her in. (laughs) You know, this curtain would sort of open and my mother would, you know, appear, you know, as some angel in the sky. I mean, it was like, it, it, it got kind of kooky, but it was lovely and beautiful. And I did feel like I answered the questions that I set out to ask, which was mind blowing and fascinating.
1: A lot of people also just report for weeks thereafter being not where they were in that session, but really in a pretty noticeably different frame of mind.
3: I think for me, it really helped me turn a corner, specifically on my fear of the future. I think, uh, well, that's one piece. One piece was I was I was so anxious about my future. You know, what's going to happen to me? Who am I now? You know, what will become of me? You know, so on and so forth. And and then the other thing that I think really changed was I had been having some trouble really letting go of my marriage you know, I was sort of reluctant to enter this future, um, you know, without my partner. And during my sort of, you know, psychedelic trip, I was finally able, I think, to really say, okay, like, I'm now going to Turn into a tree that's going to grow, you know, into the light. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell my my ex husband to sort of, you know, stop wrapping around my trunk and, uh, you know, leave me alone for a while. And I think it helped me turn turn a corner. It really did.
1: Yeah, it's uh, that. I almost laughed a little bit about that too, just because as a science writer, you're talking about the cambium of the tree and the, you know, (laughs) your husband is a strangler vine. Uh,
3: My husband was a strangler vine in my vision. very helpful.
1: So, you know, as as we come towards the end uh, of the book, once again, the book is uh, Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey by Florence Williams, to whom I'm talking right now. I don't know. I've been with my own little journey that I'm on right now, struggling with like, you know, geez, what is there? What is what is there ultimately? What's left in my quiver of arrows? What's left in my toolbox? One of the things that I've sort of come to, found is kindness. You know, if I, I can't fix, there's a lot of things I can't fix, but if I can be kind, to the people that I'm dealing with, the people who really kind of have it worse than I do, um, uh, people I love and feel helpless with kindness. You know, at the end of the day, like literally at the end of the day, not as an expression at the end of the day, going to bed. If I think, did I do that anyway? Was I effectively kind, if there is such a thing? I, and I feel like that's like one of the few things, and I sense that you know in the mix here as we as we head towards the finish line of, of your book too.
3: Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and I'm I'm sorry, you know, for your experience. And it it's, it sounds like you're you are trying to be introspective and sort of figure out, you know, what what are the positives and how to how to get through the hard times. And and I commend you for that because I th- I do think if we if we come at these problems with some sort of meaning making inclination, it can be very helpful for me, it was also empathy and compassion, you know, that I felt like I was finally able to better access, not just toward myself, but even toward my ex. You know, I got to a point where I was like, okay, you know, um, I I see you as a as a flawed human. I see all of us as flawed humans. You know, I don't think there's anything really malicious going on here, even though I was hurt. You know, I, I kind of understand a little bit more about where you're coming from. And I felt like having been through such a vulnerable sort of experience and talking about it in a vulnerable way that I was able to also just meet other people's vulnerabilities you know i mean you're more intimate i think and you can access a greater sort of openness in your own heart you know if you can really just be brutally honest with each other be um, be vulnerable with each other you know and that's not really the way we're taught it's it's kind of something that i think sometimes we have to suffer through something in order to learn,
1: so you know, in this scenes from a marriage, which I really heartily recommend that you do not watch. Um, just you, I mean, not our listeners. <laughs> just unless you really okay, want to, know. <laughs> you want to have like a big PTSD episode, then obviously <laughs> we'll undo about half of what you worked so hard to get to. But you know, one of the so just, Jessica Chastain plays the spouse who is leaving, and she says something that a lot of people who are leaving say, which is, this is going to be better for everybody. You know, right, they've got a right. kid uh, to be better for you, Oscar Isaac. It's going to be better for me. It's going to be better for because and from that person's point of view, they've been living a lie for a while. You know, they've been sort of smiling when they don't want to or whatever. You know, so that's what they think. They think, OK, it's going to be better for everybody. Uh, yeah. and, and and even though you're in a better place than you were you know, a while ago, I, I feel like that's sort of a lie that people tell themselves, that I'm going to do I, this, I it'll be it better true. for everybody. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I stepped on you.
3: Yeah, no, I think I think it's a very convenient, you know, kind of way of uh, looking at the situation.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and and I don't know, could just say one more thing about that? I mean, you are in a better place now than you were, and you did learn things you didn't know. On the I, other hand, I, you know, I'm guessing you would rather have not gone through this.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's hard on your kids for sure. For one thing, it's it's hard on a lot of people when you when you make these kind of unilateral decisions. Um, I don't know what to say. I mean, in some ways, I do feel grateful actually that it happened, and I do feel better off. But I think it, it, my first preference would have been to have that sort of growth, you know, and connection <laughs> within the context of the relationship. Um, And I think that, you know, I think that some marriages can probably come around to that, even if they're not great marriages. I think with enough work and, you know, enough, again, this kind of like meeting each other's vulnerabilities in a way that we're so bad at doing, um, if we can get to that, you know, maybe we can have that growth and transformation within the relationship.
1: All right. Well, Florence Williams, you have to leave and go write another book because I love talking to you. I guess I guess (laughs) there doesn't have to be a book. You could write a magazine article or something, and we could talk Uh, right now. Though uh, Florence Williams, science writer and the author of three books, the most recent one is Heartbreak: A Personal and Scientific Journey. Uh, And thank you so much for being with us today.
3: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
1: All right. So we'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll tell you about how your language changes while this is happening. And we're back. The show's about heartbreak. Uh, we're gonna shift gears a little bit here. Uh, I I wanna remind you, I wanna remind you of two things very quickly. One of them is the final segment is about torch songs. Uh, and it's too late to remind you of the other thing because I think we, anyway. (laughs) The final segment is about torch logs. All right. So let's uh, talk about language, linguistics, neurolinguistics, maybe. Here to do that with us, uh, Kate Blackburn, uh, a data analyst at TikTok uh, and Ciara Siraj, uh, chief technology officer at A Better Force. They are the co-authors of Evidence of an Impending Breakup May Exist in Everyday Conversation uh, in, oddly enough, The Conversation, one of our favorite um, publications, actually. so, um, Kate Blackburn, maybe get us started. Just explain in, in a nutshell what the project was. What was it that you looked at? Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um you know, one of the things that sorrow when we first started this project, um, I think we were just really drawn by that question of, you know, can we see somebody that if they're approaching a breakup, whether they're the person that's going to initiate that break- breakup or be on the, you know, the dumpy end, whether or not um, we were going to be able to see that in their language. And, you know, this is probably, you know, just human experience, knowing friends and family members and just people you've known throughout time. Um, it's very rare that somebody hasn't had a break. And so we're really curious with that, that initial question. Could we, could we see the language, whether or not that was going to show um, whether um, somebody kind of was walking towards that breakup? And so um, there's this this model in psychology, it's a, a duck's um, relationship disillusion model. Basically, it's just a breakup model. And it really talks about the different stages that you would go through in a breakup. And so, you know, the first stage is kind of this idea of, you know, you really start to think about what's wrong with your relationship and you start questioning it. And what this does is it pushes you to have a conversation with your partner. Um, and that's known of kind of the dyadic or just kind of when you get together with that person. And then um, what happens is, is it you and your partner, if you decide that, yes, you do want to break up, you end up kind of walking towards this social process where you start explaining it to your network and you start talking about how the event unfolded. And then finally, you start really grave dressing. You start kind of putting the bells and whistles on your story and thinking about how you might re-enter the dating world. And so Sarah and I use this kind of model um, in a sense to think about, can we track language in this way? Um, and, you know, one of the great things about social media um, is that you have this snapshot in time where you're able to go back and actually look at people's language, you know, before, during and after event. And um, what I'll do now is I'll turn it over to Sarah and she can go over more of the logistics of, you know, the social media we looked at and kind of um, the nuts and bolts of the study.
1: Yeah. So Sara, you guys picked Reddit. Was there a particular reason for that?
0: Yeah, one of the things about Reddit is that the uh, people who post there, it's anonymous, so their identity is protected, uh, but uh, it's uh, publicly available for researchers to get their language data. And it turns out that there's a specific subreddit where people post their breakup stories, uh, where they like, seek advice and support when they're going through a breakup. Uh, But using this subreddit, which is a community, a sub community within Reddit, we identified about uh, almost 7000 people who had gone through breakups. And then essentially we uh, got all of their language in all of their different communities within Reddit a year before up to a year after their breakup. So we could really spot when their language started to change as they were going towards the breakup. Uh, even if they weren't talking about their relationship, because uh, in Reddit, there's different subcommittees based on your interests, whether it's tennis or politics. And you can see uh, when people are talking about just other topics, not about their breakup at all, whether you can spot these language changes.
1: So, Sarah, just go a little bit further there, because one of the th- I think the specifics are kind of interesting. For example, the use of the pronoun, pronoun I. Um explain that example to us.
0: Sure. Uh, so what we found was that about three months before uh, people had their breakup, their use of I words, which is words like I, myself, me, increased. Uh, and then it really peaked when the breakup happened. Uh, and it took about six months to get back to their normal levels, essentially, when uh, before their breakup. And um, what what, what's been shown in past research is that I words can be tied to when you're feeling depressed or you're in emotional distress, because uh, when you're going through a tough life event, it's really hard to think about others You're really centering around yourself and thinking about yourself. And I think that this is what we were seeing there, that as they headed towards their breakup, whether they knew it was happening or not, their lives were uh, they're kind of struggling in their life. And that showed through their use of increased use of I words.
1: And Kate, analytical language began to fade. That was even noticeable, I think, uh, in in the use or non-use of articles like a and the. Can you say more about that?
2: Yeah. And so really what's striking here about some of the analytical thinking kind of taking a dip on, um, you know, as the breakup uh, approaches is that we see this other language pattern really emerge and that's uh, cognitive processing words. So words that are really ha- um, showing how people are thinking about something. So think, ought, know, should, because. So as people approach the breakup, we see this start to peak. Um, and there's been some other research besides our own that's shown that when people write about their breakup story and you know people read these and evaluate them as being you know complete narratives or like you know kind of patched together narratives, what they find is is that um, those complete narratives or people that have told the entire story use less cognitive processing words. And so what that means like in those studies and, and in our study is that when there's this peak moment of cognitive processing words, this is where people are really trying to make sense of, you know, why has this happened? Um, and so I think seeing it, you know, kind of increase, just as Sara was saying, you know, as it approaches the breakup, um, that's really telling. Um, and I think it's really important also, you know, for the, the aftermath. Right. So, like, how long do we see this cognitive processing, you know, word use continue?
1: You know, if we could just sort of jump jump ahead, Sara, we've got about 60 seconds left. One of the questions I think a lot of people would have was, OK, is this applicable somehow? Is it transferable to, say, the clinical sphere? Is there some way that, as clinicians look for some way to help people with trauma and heartbreak and sorrow, this linguistic analysis could be helpful?
0: Yeah. So um, these days, a lot of people use journaling apps where they have a lot of their own language data. And one possible application could be if there was a, uh, if people's language are really getting altered. uh, the app could prompt you and say, hey, it's show- it seems like you're showing signs of deep emotional distress. Uh, these are some resources you can go to, or this might be a good time to uh, seek help from clinicians uh, because you've, uh, you've been displaying these signs for an extended period of time. So that's one uh, future application.
1: That's really, really fascinating. I mean, it's kind of like the, you know, the only phrase, watch your language. It's usually a uh, caution to not swear or something, but watch your language because it might be trying to tell you something uh, mm-hmm. that you weren't fully conscious of well for more about this um, the the work is really fascinating we recommend that you go to the conversation it's a free easy site to get to uh, and the piece is evidence of an impending breakup may exist in everyday conversation Uh, Sarah Siraj and Kate Blackburn have been with us Uh, we are now going to take a quick break we're going to talk about uh, torch songs songs of longing songs that maybe have some of the language that uh, in fact uh, Sarah and Kate are talking about
0: To sleep But sleep won't come
1: Okay, time for some thank yous. Cat Pastor, technical producer, a par excellence, on every single day, including this one. And today's episode was produced by senior producer emeritus, Betsy Kaplan. Uh, thanks very much to her as well. We're going to end with a subject, uh, Dear to My Heart, and that is the torch song. We've been talking about heartbreak. I think artistically, I mean, you can see heartbreak in paintings. You can see it on stage and uh, on the screen. You can read about it in books. But there's no place, I think, that gets at heartbreak so perfectly uh, as music does. Um, it, it just sort of gets right into our bloodstream, bypasses everything else. And it does so in the convention of what we call the Torch Song. So here to talk about the Torch songs is Noah Behrman, been with us many times before. Jazz pianist, composer, educator, artistic director of the nonprofit Resident Motion. Uh, he directs the Jazz Ensemble at Wesleyan University. His most recent album is Love Right. And Noah, welcome back to our show. Thanks so much, Colin. So... We should have a working definition here. I mean, I have my own working definition of a Torch song, but what's yours? Well,
4: I I find it's a little smushy for me. Um, So uh, as with so many such distinctions, uh, something that is definitely a Torch song would be a great American songbook composition that uh, discusses heartbreak in some way in the lyrics, um, usually Romantic heartbreak. Sometimes it's unrequited love. Sometimes it's lost love. Sometimes it's a more general sense of romantic longing. And there tend to be jazz undertones at minimum in the delivery. So something that has all of those things is definitely a torch song. Now, songs that are categorized as such can be performed in more or less torchy ways. And that's where things get a little nebulous for me.
1: All right. So uh, we, we've each picked uh, a handful of songs. Uh, I'm going to um, exercise host prerogative uh, and begin with one of mine. Uh, this is a song by Alec Wilder. I think the lyric is being by somebody named Lunas McGlohan or something. Somebody i never heard of. It's an Alec Wilder tune. It's called Blackberry Winter. We're going to hear a version of it sung, I think, about as perfectly as a, this song can be sung by a jazz singer named Hillary Cole.
3: Blackberry winter Only lasts a few days Just long enough to get you feeling sad When you think of all the love that you've wasted On someone that you never really had
1: So, Noah, I think one of the things a Torch song has to have to really work is kind of the shock of recognition um, in its lyrics. And there's a way in which one of the reasons that I love this song is, is there's two lines that just get me every time. I mean, they shock me, even though I've listened to the song a hundred times. One of them is that we just heard it. When you think of all the love you wasted on someone that you've never really had. Uh, And then at the end, near the end, she sings, um, I get so lonely, most of all in springtime. Uh, And and I don't know, there's just a way in which the sort of confession uh, of of misery and loneliness. It it just, I don't know. And and it obviously needs to be married to wonderful music, which I think is here, and a wonderful singer, which I think is here too, but I'd love to hear some of your thoughts.
4: Well, yeah, and I when you say it has to have have those things to work, I'm going to ask you, do you mean to work as something that belongs uh, in the Torch Song category or to work just as an effective uh, musical conveyance of heartbreak
1: i mean i think with the torch song i mean what are we looking for i think that would be interesting to talk about we're i think we're looking for some exquisite combination of pain and pleasure you know the song has to be pleasurable in some ways otherwise you're not going to listen to it uh, but it's also usually an evocation of pain and longing that has to come together in a way that that draws us back to it moths to the flame again and again right yeah
4: yeah well i agree with that and i think that's something that uh once I found out we were going to have this conversation, something I've been contemplating uh, is what that perfect balance is of, and I guess you could call it pain and pleasure, but on on some level, more mundanely, it's uh, musical and or lyrical elements that twist the knife into your heart and those that are pleasant enough to keep you, even if you are uh, a little bit faint of heart, uh, keep you engaged because if it's nothing but... The deepest pathos from every angle, all at the same time. You'll be limiting the audience of people who will have the tolerance and who will find that nourishing.
1: I I want to take one of the songs that you you, that you picked. I'm going to have uh, pick uh, Billie Holiday singing "You've Changed," and that's all we really need to say about this because let Billy say the rest. You've
0: changed. That
3: sparkle in your eyes is gone Your smile is just a careless yawn You're
1: breaking my heart You've changed You've changed I forget to signal for the fade because I was so swept up in this. Um, all right, so Noah, yeah, give us uh, teach us a little course on this song.
4: Well, I guess I chose this as an example of something that is in again a major key, in spite of being uh, a very sad song, and um, and so yeah, if you if you heard this without a sensitive interpretation. It might seem um, somewhat melancholy, but not necessarily heartbreaking to the extent that the lyrical content suggests. Uh, And I think one thing I find important when we look at these these songs is that they depend to me very much on the performance, bringing out those nuances. So this is late career Billie Holiday, her voice, I don't wanna say it was shot, but it was much more fragile than it had been earlier in her career. She had endured a lot emotionally, and uh, the arrangement I find of that particular recording extremely schmaltzy and overwrought, and yet a lot of jazz musicians I know cite that album, Lady in Satin, as prime Billie Holiday, just because in spite of the soprano choirs and the harp and the orchestral swells and so on, she's delivering this extraordinarily tender, vulnerable performance. And to me, that's where you really strike gold. And that marriage of these sad yet subtle songs, given a really emotionally direct and vulnerable performance, that's where it really does something deep for a listener.
1: So, yeah, I always uh, said back uh, many, many decades ago when I was a single man and dating, I used to say that if you walked into a woman's apartment and saw a lot of Billie Holiday and Bessie Smith albums, Chances are the people, the men who had been there before you had done a certain amount of damage ah. <laughs> that you were going to be held responsible for in some abstract way. So I want to go over to one of uh, your other choices. This is not one that would have popped into my mind when I think of Torch songs, but then when I think about it some more, I see exactly what you mean. Uh, this uh, is Over the Rainbow, the uh, sort of outtake alternate version, I think, by by Judy Garland. Uh, so let's hear a little bit of Harold Arlen and Yip Harburg's tune
0: Some day I'll wake and rub my eyes and in that land beyond the skies you'll find me
2: <laughs>
0: So
3: over the rainbow blue
0: birds
3: fly
0: birds fly over the rainbow why <laughs> <laughs>
1: All right. Uh, I never heard that one before. Um, I'd say crying is cheating, except Bernadette Peters singing Not A Day Goes By. Uh, she cries. We want her to cry. So tell us a little bit about uh, why you picked this and what your relationship is to it.
4: To, to be clear, I'm not so much presenting this as a torch song as just an example of heartbreak conveyed through music, but there's this fine line, and I'm not a theater person, but if you actually care about delivering uh, some kind of narrative to an audience, then there's a degree of conscious manipulation. Like you're trying to structure things in a way that will deliver emotion in the time and place where you intend to. Or the type of music, I guess, that informs my own concept and sensibility as, a, as an artist is one where you want to actually inhabit that vulnerability. So you're not sort of maintaining a neutral stance um, and then projecting emotion in order to deliver it theatrically to an audience. You're actually inhabiting that emotion in in a way that's almost trance-like or can be. And so I I have always loved this outtake of uh, a very emotionally overcome young Judy Garland, just as an example of what happens when you're not acting anymore. Most people don't want that most of the time. Like it's it's telling that that, that was not the version that made it into the movie. That was not the version that uh, most people have heard because that little of unmitigated emotion without some kind of softening agent, so to speak, uh, is really intense and take, takes you somewhere that not everybody necessarily wants to go.
1: Once I realized you and I were going to have this conversation, I tried to think longer and harder and deeper about towards songs than than I previously had. Although I didn't really have to go that far to to think this because I've thought it before, which is, you know, there's a whole body of scholarly research about the whole idea that reading fiction actually enhances – Our capacity for empathy, Uh, because when you read a novel, when you read a short story, you have to begin to understand the you know the stories and the emotions uh, of the person in it, and and I think yeah, I think that could be said for torch songs too, and and I feel like like going back to Blackberry Winter. I don't know. You you should be aware of the times that you were the person unsuccessfully loved. You were the person who withheld. You were the person who laughed. So how did you do it? How much damage did you inflict? Could you have inflicted less damage? I mean, there's a way in which, you know, listening to these songs in a more holistic sense, you you can begin to identify with everybody in it. And, And it might actually enhance our capacities for empathy. So can Torch songs make us better people?
4: I think so. I mean, there are all kinds of reasons to create music and all kinds of impacts of music, but the one that keeps me coming back and not ditching it and pursuing another career entirely <laughs> is that ultimately music can exist to either illuminate things we can't express in words or to enhance things that we can inadequately express in words. And once you add the music to the mix... It increases and deepens the realm of emotional and life experience that we can express. And so you put it into a well-crafted song and especially uh, an emotionally potent delivery of a well-crafted song. And you've got something that can make you connect more deeply to insights or emotions that you might be intellectually aware of otherwise, but might not connect as fully.
1: So we're going to – we have to sort of stop there, first of all, and thank uh, Noah Behrman, who's always so great whenever we have him on to talk about music. We'll end – today with, I, I used to uh, introduce, well, on one, one or two occasions I've introduced this song on stage with the jazz singer Diane Maurer. I also introduce it as the saddest song ever written. I don't really know that, whether that's true or not. And some of the edge will be taken off of that when I tell you it was co-written, you're not going to believe this, it was co-written by a former NFL lineman, a guy named Mike Reed, played for the Cincinnati Bengals, <laughs> and he based it on a news item. But anyway, here's, we're going to go out with uh, Bonnie Raitt singing, I Can't Make You Love. I you. Kill?